Welcome to the Crossing Church Podcast. This week, we begin a new series titled Hot Topics. And Pastor Stephen Robles delivers a message, Why Does God Seem Angry in the Old Testament? We hope you enjoy this weekend's message. Can you keep that applause going as we welcome our South Shore campus with Pastor Hector Rivera, our Plant City campus with Pastor Michael Pippen, and everyone watching online and around the world. We're so glad you're here today and so glad you're here at the Tampa campus. Wow, what an awesome crowd today. Mid-July, come on somebody. Yes. Well, again, it's an honor and a privilege to be here and to be teaching the Word this weekend. And I thank our lead pastors, Greg and Tamara. They're going to be back next week. Pastor Greg will be bringing the Word next weekend. So show them your appreciation. We love you. Can't wait to hear from you next weekend. So the honor of kicking off a new series today called Hot Topics. It's a bit of a double entendre because, let's be honest, we live in Florida and it's hot. It's very hot. I'm from New York and I still have not gotten used to it after 10 years. So it is hot. But we also want to talk about some issues and questions that people raise against Christianity and that we might not have heard answers from in the past. And so we're going to try and address some of those questions in this series. So let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your presence is in this place across our campuses and with everyone watching online. And God, we just pray that you speak to all of us today. Please use me. In Jesus' name, amen. And so you may realize that we are living in an increasingly secular and agnostic or atheistic culture. And whenever you hear things in the news media, on social media, there's a lot of one-liners and quips that people use against Christianity, kind of to knock Christianity down a peg or to make fun of Christianity. But sometimes they're legitimate questions. And when we don't have answers to those questions, it could erode our faith and it can start instilling doubt. And maybe you've heard questions like these, things like, doesn't God condone polygamy in the Old Testament? Or if we believe the Bible, why don't we follow all the laws in Deuteronomy and Leviticus? Or how can we reasonably believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And you know, what's encouraging is there's actually good answers to all these questions. And you might not have just heard them before. How many of you grew up in church when you were younger? How many grew up in church? Yeah, a lot of you, and so did I. And you know, it's interesting, back 20, 30 years, the church as a whole didn't really have good resources sometimes for answers to these questions. Maybe you had a question in youth group or when you were younger, and the answer you received is, well, the Bible says it, and so that settles it. Or maybe the answer was, you just need to have enough faith. That's all. And those kinds of answers are, I was going to say okay, but they're not really okay. Because when those kind of answers are heard by a teenager or a young person who has genuine questions about Christianity, it leaves them wondering, has no one thought of these before? Has no one thought of getting answers to these questions before? And so that's what we're going to try and do. Because I want to encourage you, there are great answers to these questions And we're going to bring some of them to you. And I'm so glad that we are at a church, the Crossing Church, where our lead pastor does not shy away from difficult topics and that he addresses them head on. Come on, show him your appreciation. And if you attend long enough, I believe you'll get many answers to the tough questions. And so here's the question for today. If you're taking notes, if you want to write a title for the message down, it is this. Why does God seem angry in the Old Testament? Have any of you heard that question before? Maybe you've wondered that yourself. That's some crazy stuff in that book. Why does he seem so angry? 
It seems to be wiping out entire nations of people. I don't know if you know this story, but there's even a time when the ground opens up and swallows people whole. Numbers 16, 31, it says, Moses finished saying these things and the ground under the men opened. It was as if the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them. What is happening? And it's funny, in today's world, we love hearing supernatural stories. We love superhero movies and comic books, TV shows. We love seeing the supernatural. Well, let me encourage you. There's nothing more crazy and supernatural than the stories in the Old Testament. Just read the Old Testament, and you will find some of the most amazing stories. People are flying into the sky on flaming chariots. Entire seas are splitting in two. One guy literally wrestles an angel. And you might not even know what this story is. I'm going to show you a picture of this T-shirt. Just kidding. That TV's off. But, oh, hey, there it is. I'm not even going to tell you what this verse is. You're going to have to look it up later. That's all I'm going to give you. You just have to look it up. 2 Kings 2, 23. It's a crazy story. But we know as Christians that the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. We know that Jesus Christ was God made flesh. And so it's the same God. So how do we reconcile this difference, what we read in the Old Testament and what we read in the New Testament? Well, the first idea we need to make sure we understand is we need to look at the whole picture. We need to look at the whole picture of the Bible and even the whole picture of the Old Testament. Let me ask you, where are my parents at? If you're a parent, would you wave at me? Do you have kids? Yeah, I have kids. Now just imagine if we played a highlight reel of every time you lost your mind with your kids. What kind of parent would you look like? I would look like a crazy person. I don't know about you. Now, what happened if we played a highlight reel of every Christmas morning with your kids telling you, thank you, Mommy, thank you, Daddy? You'd look like the best parent in the world. So if we look at isolated events from any person's life, it gives us a distorted picture of who they are. And so when we read the Bible, we can't look at isolated events and then draw a general conclusion. We have to look at the whole picture. Amen? So we have to look at the whole picture before passing judgment. Now I'm going to make another statement, and I need you to to reserve judgment because I need to explain what I mean. So don't throw a tomato at me. Don't throw any stones. We can't always read the Bible literally. Somebody just sent me an angry email. I heard it. I heard it. We can't always read the Bible literally. Now, what do I mean by this? The Bible is not one book. Today, you go to the store or you order a Bible online, and it comes as one book. You have a cover on the front, cover on the back, and we think, well, this is just one book. But it's actually a collection of books. There are 66 books in the Bible. Those 66 books are written by 40 different authors. And the entire Bible was written over a time span of 1,500 years. And among those 66 books, there are different kinds of literature. There are songs. There is poetry. There is history that tells us of past events. And there's prophetic imagery. And we need to understand the kind of literature we are reading when we read different books of the Bible. So I'm going to give you five tools today as we examine the Old Testament. Here's the first tool. We need to read the Bible literarily. Turn to your neighbor and say, literarily. (laughs) Sounds like, (laughs) that is an actual word, I promise you, literarily. 
It means we need to read the Bible with the type of literature that it is. Whatever the book we are reading, whatever the chapter, even the passage we are reading. And you see, when we read the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and later, those authors wrote in the first century. That's about 2,000 years ago. When we read the Old Testament, we're talking four, 5,000 years ago. It is a very different time in a different country and a different culture and even in a different language. So as we read the Old Testament and the New, we need to remember the culture and the context of what the passage of the Bible is coming from. And we understand to a point that there are different kinds of literature, even in the New Testament. Take this example. The book of Ephesians was a letter. This was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And we understand that some things written in Ephesians are universal truths that are true for all time and for us today. And there are certain parts of it that were contextual just for that time. If you look at the very end of the book of Ephesians, in chapter 6, verse 21, the apostle Paul is writing to the church, and he says this, Tychicus, our dearly loved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me so that you may be informed. I am sending him to you for this very reason, to let you know how we are and to encourage our hearts. Paul says, I am sending him to you. Now, if we today wait for Tychicus to come to the crossing church, we're going to be waiting a long time. That brother's dead. I'm sorry. That was Paul writing to the church about an event that's going to happen then in the first century. And so we understand that. That's not for us today. That was for the church at Ephesus. Now, you might be wondering, well, how do we know? How do we know what's a letter and what's a song? What's history? Well, you just read the Bible. If you actually read from beginning of chapter, beginning of book to end of book, whether it's Ephesians or 1 Kings, Chronicles, it will tell you what it is. At the beginning of that book, Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says it. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul opens the book by telling us this is a letter to the saints at Ephesus. In the same way, when you read the Psalms, if you look at Psalm chapter 5 or many of the Psalms, there's headings there in the Bible, whether you use an app or a physical Bible. And Psalm chapter 5 says, for the choir director with the flutes, a Davidic psalm or song. So the Bible is telling us this is a song. Now, how do we know when something is historic? How do we know when something is an actual event? Well, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, those are biographies of Jesus Christ. And watch how the writers set up the books. Luke chapter 1, this is the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. He says this, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence. Most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. So the writer of the Gospel of Luke, who is Luke, is telling us this is about the events. There are original eyewitnesses. These have been carefully investigated. So this is about actual historical events. And if later in the book of Luke... Starting in chapter 12, we see another literary device. And this is Jesus talking. Jesus uses parable after parable. What's a parable? It's a story. 
It's a story that Jesus is using to provide a point or to prove a point. We have the parable of the fig tree, the mustard seed, the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, the lost sheep, and many others. And so the prodigal of the good Samaritan, that was a story Jesus used to prove a point. That was not an actual event that happened. Jesus was telling a story. And we can ascertain that as we read. And not only that, but Jesus himself used metaphors all the time. You know what a metaphor is. It's describing something by using another word for effect. Think about this. John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus himself says, I am the bread of life. Jesus told them, no one comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. He says, I am the bread of life. Now, we don't have Bible studies today talking about whether Jesus was a loaf of wonder bread or a loaf of Dave's killer bread, the most holy bread. If you believe Jesus was more like wonder bread, we have freedom ministries for you. That's Ms. Pastor Fiona's over here saying, Amen. No, we understand that Jesus wasn't a loaf of bread. He was saying that if we come to him and receive the life that Jesus offers, he can fulfill and sustain us for eternity. In the same way, John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. Now, we don't have small group studies that say, well, was Jesus a folding door, a French door, or a sliding door? Now, this may sound silly to you, but that would be reading it literally. If we read Jesus' words that said, I am the door, that would be literal. But no, we understand that when Jesus says, I am the door, he is saying he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Jesus Christ. Amen. So we need to read the Bible literarily. Everybody say literarily. You guys didn't know you'd be doing diction exercises this morning. Red leather, yellow leather. I did musical theater in high school. Forgive me. I have all those exercises in my head. So read the Bible literally. Now, number two, here's our second tool, another exercise, hyperbole. Everybody say hyperbole. Hyperbole, what is that? It means exaggeration or overstatement for effect. Hyperbole. And we need to remember this when we read the Old Testament. Now, we understand this today. If you were watching a sports ball game, thank you, Pastor Wade, and one sports ball team scores many points over another team, what do we say happened in the game? We would say the Tampa Buccaneers killed the Kansas City Chiefs at the Super Bowl. We would say the Tampa Bay Lightning slaughtered the Canadians and won the Stanley Cup. Right? They downright crushed them. They destroyed them. It was a bloodbath. Now imagine if the disciples in the first century read our communications about these sports games. They'd say, these Americans are savages. They're destroying each other and killing each other. But we understand the context today. We're using hyperbole in this context, and we need to understand that this was also used 4,000 years ago. So, to the question of, did the Israelites wipe out entire groups of people? Let's see. 1 Samuel chapter 15, we have the events of King Saul attacking the Amalekites. And so it says this, 1 Samuel 15, uh, verse 7, Then Saul struck down the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is next to Egypt. 
He captured Agag, the king of Amalek, alive, but he completely destroyed all the rest of the people with the sword. Now, if we take that literally, we would say he destroyed every Amalekite, just the one king left. If you know biology, he can't have kids by himself. So, no more Amalekites, right? But what happens 15 chapters later, several years later in history when King David is the king? 1 Samuel chapter 30 says this, David and his men arrived in Ziklag on the third day, and the Amalekites had raided the Negev and attacked and burned down Ziklag. Now, is this some kind of ghost Amalekite? Is this a return of the mummy situation? No. There was hyperbole in the first verse. Yes, he destroyed the Amalekites in that attack, but some remained. One other example. This is from Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. You may know the story well. Joshua chapter 6, verse 20, the end of that story, it says, So the people shouted, the trumpet sounded. When they heard the blast of the trumpet, the people gave a great shout, and the wall collapsed. The people advanced into the city, each man straight ahead. They captured the city, and they completely destroyed everything in the city with the sword. Every man and woman, both young and old, every ox, sheep, and donkey, everything completely destroyed. But what does it say in the very next verse? It says, Joshua said to two men who had scouted the land, go to the prostitute's house, Rahab, who helped the Israelites, bring the woman out of there and all who are with her, just as you promised. So the young men who had scouted went in and brought out Rahab and her father, her mother, her brothers, all who belonged to her. They brought out her whole family and settled them outside the camp of Israel. Now, I thought they destroyed everybody. And yet here we have an entire family still left. So again, we have to understand that hyperbole was a literary device used here and there in the Old Testament. So that was tool number two. Now, number three, actions of Old Testament people are not always condoned. Listen, there were a lot of characters in the Old Testament that made a lot of mistakes, King David being one of the worst. But just because someone in the Old Testament did something doesn't mean God thought it was okay. For instance, God's moral standard for marriage, he set up in Genesis chapter 2, the second chapter in the entire Bible, way at the beginning. God says this, Genesis 2, verse 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, singular, and they become one flesh. So God sets up marriage right there, Genesis chapter 2. Now we have many years later, King Solomon. I'll just be honest. He was a player. <laughs> 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3, it says this. Solomon had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. That's a lot of anniversaries to remember. <laughs> 700 wives. Now, wasn't King Solomon blessed and didn't God find favor with him? What does the second part of that verse say? And they turned his heart away from the Lord. You see, just because Solomon did this thing doesn't mean that God condoned it. In fact, the Bible tells us that what he did turned his heart away from the Lord. And if you ask, well, then why does Solomon seem so blessed? I mean, they say he's rich and all, has all this stuff. But let us remember, if we question why God blesses Solomon, we should question why God blesses us too. We all make many, many mistakes, and he still blesses us.
And one other example for this point. Even Jesus in the New Testament made this clear. Matthew chapter 19, starting with verse 7, Jesus is talking about marriage. And he's talking to the religious leaders. And they ask him, why then, the religious leaders asked Jesus, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? They had instructions for divorce even back in Moses' time. But Jesus told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not like that from the beginning. You see, even Jesus says that wasn't the intent. You guys were going to do this anyway, and so I had to set up some rules for it, but that's not what I intended from the start. And so just because things happen in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament and even today does not mean that God condones them. Okay? So number three, just because someone did it in the Old Testament doesn't mean God condones it. Now, let's learn about God's character. What was he actually like in the Old Testament? Well, your fourth tool for thinking about the Old Testament, God was often merciful. God was often merciful and gracious in the Old Testament. I'm going to read some verses here rapid fire just to give you a picture of his character from the writers of the Old Testament. They say in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 9, For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 31, But in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Isaiah 55, verse 7, Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. Even Jonah, after hanging out inside a fish for three days, says this about God. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to become angry, rich in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Over and over again, the Old Testament writers talk about the character of God in this way. Gracious, merciful, forgiving, slow to anger. And now we see the whole picture of the character of God. Even a verse often attributed to Jesus in the New Testament, love your neighbors, love your enemies as yourself. It was actually set up first by God in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 says this, do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. It was actually God in the Old Testament who said it first. Love your neighbor as yourself. So you see, the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament, full of love and mercy and grace. So what is it that seems to invoke this anger or wrath that it talks about. Because we do see verses about God's anger and wrath, and he pours it out. Why? What is it that makes God so angry? Well, that's your last tool. It's because, number five, God despises sin. God hates sin. Why? Because sin is the one thing that puts a barrier between you and him. Sin in our lives is the one thing that prevents us from having communion and a relationship with him as our father. Sin separates us from God, and he wants to be close to us. You see, in Isaiah chapter 59, it says this, Indeed, the Lord's hand is not too short to save, and his ear is not too deaf to hear, 
but your iniquities, your sin, have built barriers between you and your God, and your sins have made him hide his face from you so that he does not listen. Psalms chapter 5, verse 4 says this, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. And so this is what the Old Testament is saying. When there is sin present, whether individually with Israel as a corporate nation, that God cannot have that close relationship that he so wants. Even Jesus talks harshly about sin. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus again tells the religious leaders, And the king will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. But then he also says to those on the left, those living in sin, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Take it easy, Jesus. You sound like your dad. Some of you will get that as you drive home. You see, it's the same God in the Old and the New Testament a God full of grace and love and mercy, but also one that takes sin very seriously because it's the one thing that can separate us from him. The creator of the universe actually wants a personal relationship with you. And to do that, the walls and barriers of sin must come down in our lives so we can hear from him. Amen. If you'd like to read more about this idea, God in the Old Testament, or how to read the Bible literarily. Everybody say literarily. It got a little clearer. Okay. Two books I'd recommend. Is God a Moral Monster? Making Sense of the Old Testament God. That's by Christian apologist Paul Copan. Incredible resource. And another book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart's. If you want to know more about this idea of God in the Old Testament, I encourage you to check those books out. So was God angry in the Old Testament? No. He's actually passionate about you throughout the entire Bible. You see, if we truly want to understand the nature and character of God, it's that God is love. The Bible tells us over and over again how much God loves us. One of my favorite verses, 1 John 4:16, And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love love. And the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. Matthew 11, verse 28 says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And one last verse, you may recognize this, John three sixteen. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. There was a time in my life when I was actually attending a Christian college that I struggled with my faith because I felt alone. I felt like I wasn't feeling loved by God. I didn't feel an emotional connection. And it was actually one of these verses, 1 John 4, 16. I picked up my Bible after many months of not reading it. And I read those words, God is love. And I thought to myself, even if I don't feel loved, if I know that God exists, he must love me 
because God is love. He can't not love. It is his very nature and character to pursue you, to love you, to want a relationship with you. Maybe you didn't hear this song growing up in church. It was actually a poem written in 1860 by Anna Warner. It says this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Amen. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me for a moment. My first question is this. If you're here and you're a Christian or you're not, doesn't matter. But if you're saying, I feel alone, this could be anybody. If I feel alone, I need to feel that love that you're talking about from a father who is God. Would you slip up your hand for a moment? I just want to pray over you. We're not going to make you do anything. If you say, that's me. I feel alone in this season. Just raise your hand for me and just hold it up for a second. I just want to pray over you. I see hands there, hands there. With every head bowed and every eye closed. God, I just pray for those who have their hands raised and maybe those who don't, but that feel alone right now. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit visit them in their homes, in their cars, at their workplace, wherever they go, that they can't escape you, that they feel your presence and your love and your care for them every minute of every day, that they hear from you, that they hear your word in Jesus' name. And now one more call. If you would keep your heads bowed and eyes closed just for a moment. This last call is for those who say, actually, I've never given my life to Jesus. I want to give my life to him. I want to serve him for the rest of my days. I want to turn from my old life and go to him for a new life. The Bible says he will make you a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. If that's you, we're going to pray a simple prayer. Everyone's going to repeat it together so you're not alone. But if that's you, I want you to pray these words. Everyone together say, Dear Jesus, forgive me. Make me new. I give you my life. And teach me to follow you the rest of my days. In Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed that message from Pastor Stephen Robles. Don't forget, you can follow us on social media at We Are Crossing on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can download the Crossing Church app by searching for Crossing Church Tampa in the App Store or Google Play Store. Thanks for joining us. We can't wait to worship with you next weekend.